Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Fury of Fandom Podcast. My name is Saint. And me, I am Jim. Yes, you are, Jim. Welcome back to another episode. We are pleased as punch to have yourselves listening to us and throwing us in your ear holes like you should. Uh, it's been an interesting week. It's been a very long week. Uh, Jim, how the hell are you, buddy? You know, good. It's been a good weekend. Yesterday was a day of rest, um, but prior to that, Friday night, uh, my band had a show. Uh, we went back to the place where we did our first show back in February. And, oh, the Mad uh, Scientist. Yeah, Mad Scientist. This is a great bar in Waukesha, Wisconsin, that uh, is is themed um, with with this Mad Science theme. They have like uh, like drinks called the um, the one point twenty one Gigawater, and uh, just they serve them in beakers, and it's great. But the bummer of it is that uh, the landlord who owns the building, that uh, our friend DC who runs the bar, is in, is trying to hike the rent on him. So he's actually closing at the end of the month when his lease is up on July first. So that's that a giant sucks. pain in the ass. We won't get a chance to play there again, but uh, it was a good show. We had a good turnout. Um, you know, the performance wasn't without the odd hiccup here and there, but I mean, I, you can probably relate to this. How much of a pain in the ass is it when you nail something a dozen times running in rehearsal, <laughs> then get to the gig and eat shit on it? <sighs> but, I'll, tell you, you know, I'll tell you like this. I recorded a, uh, we're, we recorded a new song, or we're, we're in the process of recording a new song with my band. And what I do, my dumb process, and we talked a little about this with Kermit, but uh, my process is is they'll send me either a raw track that they record at practice or something that my guitar player Shane uh, puts together in an audio editing program. So I have something to write to. And so I I spent like a week writing this latest song. It's called Walk Through Hell. And I spent like a week writing the lyrics and perfecting the pacing and getting it right on where I wanted it. And then the, the, the dumb thing is, is in order to, if it's between practices and I want to show the guys what I've done, I usually take that audio that they send me and I'll, I'll take my, my Zoom recorder, the same one that I use to record the podcast on, and I'll get in my car and I'll drive someplace quiet because it's basically like a sound booth. I did this back when I was uh, in the desert, too, writing songs when I was at work, uh, stranded in the desert for three weeks. And uh, so I'll record, I'll just, I'll have it in my headphones, and then I'll just record my vocals going into the Zoom recorder, and then I'll bring it all back into Audacity and edit it in so they can have like a, like a scratch track to see where I'm going with it. And this last time, Walk Through Hell... I could not get my voice to do what I wanted it to do. I've already sung the lyrics a hundred times. I knew how I wanted to sing it. I knew where I wanted to sing it. But for some reason, trying to express it, you know, in my car behind the Safeway where it was quiet, it was just, I sounded like I was trying to be James Hetfield, adding a little <laughs> bit too many, ooh-ah, hee-ah, and, and those aren't part of the song. So, I mean, it sounded like garbage. I'm lucky they didn't just boot me out of the band right there. So, Well, you know, I, I'm not saying it was a bad gig. It wasn't. But it took a couple of songs into the first set for us to find our footing. And then the uh, the second set actually went a lot better. But um, overall, I think you know, any gig that you come away from uh, with uh, the, the crowd liking things as much as ours did on Friday is, is a good gig. So onward and upward. we got a couple more. Our, uh, our guitar player, one of our guitar players, TJ, is going to be taking a little paternity leave in July because his wife is due in the next two or three weeks. So oh. he'll be uh, taking a little bit of time away. Uh, we don't have anything scheduled uh, show-wise before then, but it's tough because Milwaukee 
one of the things that anybody who doesn't live here doesn't really realize milwaukee is the city of festivals we have uh because summertime is so nice it's it's cold during the winter but summer is so beautiful up here that we uh we have a bunch of festivals Summerfest being the biggest one and Summerfest does not get any of the credit that it deserves for being literally according to guinness book the biggest music festival in the world people want to talk about bonnaroo wow. or coachella or Lollapalooza, or the big day out in australia Australia, but Summerfest, quietly in Milwaukee, is the biggest music festival in the world, as certified by the folks who keep records on that. So that's a big one. And then uh, for a couple of months on either side of that, they use the Summerfest grounds in Milwaukee to hold other cultural festivals like Festa Italiana, Irish Fest. They have a nice Pride Fest that goes down down there. Um, they have a Native American Fest um, called Indian Summer, where they you know just have food and music and culture and all this great stuff. And every church has a church festival. There's parking lot festivals, outdoor shows. So the real pain in the ass of that is, though, because the demand is so high for bands for these festivals and most of, only the really established bands that you know have been around for a couple of years, which we haven't. We're brand new. Uh, we just started rehearsing last summer and this was our third gig on Friday. Uh, they tend to get the calls first for these festivals. So it's tough to book shows in and around Milwaukee for the summer because there's a high demand for the festivals. Out. Yeah. Well, yeah, they're booked really far out to begin with, and all of the bars where you usually see live music on a weekend, they're just not booking shows at all because they can't compete with the festivals. They can't bring enough people in to really pay a band and make it worth their while with the bar tabs. So right. it's a little bit tough, but um, we've already got a couple things lined up for September, October, November, which seems like an eternity away, but... You know, you take the rough with the smooth and you just kind of try and get better in the meantime. But yeah, and I, I put up uh, a, a nice website for us a couple of days ago. Uh, just did some quick and dirty WYSIWYG editing tools and GoDaddy and slapped us up something pretty basic, but it serves the purpose it needs to. And so, yeah, things are progressing really well on that front. And yeah, that's awesome. kind of just been the, uh, the focus of all of my uh, creative energy that I'm not using to work uh, in the last two weeks or so. But yeah, it seems to be coming together. How you doing? I'm good. Uh, we just actually booked another gig. Uh, we haven't been booking very many gigs these days. We booked a gig for uh, this place in Seattle called The Substation, which I've seen pictures of, and it's a really cool... They've got two different bars, so two different stages. So uh, I'm really looking forward to testing out a new venue and seeing what that's all about. And uh, We've got about probably about a half-hour set, so we're going to try to work in as many of these new tunes as we can and just kind of field test them for the first time and yeah i'm looking forward to it awesome love it but uh I mean, other than that it's just been work work hours have been crazy uh yeah getting over uh i, I kind of ended up getting a little bit sick uh with uh, a, a cough that has been bothering me because of my i think my daughter got sick first and she kind of passed it on to everyone as kids are want to do they are all about sharing little walking petri dishes and then me and uh, me and Maria actually went out yesterday and got our booster shots, and uh, that I didn't have really any effects from the first shot, the second shot, the third shot, but this one has been royally fucking with me. Like my wow. stomach's topsy turvy, uh, my arm is like dead weight right now, and it's crazy. But you know, you do what you have to do. So yep, gotta stay healthy as much as you possibly can. So. Other than that, not a whole lot going on. Just excited to have this conversation here. And uh, uh, it, what's really cool about this, and and, uh, and I'll explain it to y'all listening, is uh, I get to connect with a buddy of mine who I haven't talked to in uh, a long, long time. Uh, uh, and we knew each other uh, through the SCA, which, which as many of you know, I was in the SCA for about a dozen years. 
And for the uninitiated, uh, that's the Society for Creative Anachronism. They do historical recreations of uh, medieval stuff and other things. And it's just a really, really cool way of uh, folks with common interests getting together and and enjoying uh, a little bit of living history. Absolutely. And and so I want to... uh, we're gonna we're gonna bring up this subject here in a minute, but I want to introduce him first uh, uh, to get him in on the conversation since he's just staring there, looking at the camera with rapt attention. So uh, I want to introduce a very good friend of mine, uh, Tamlin, to the program. Tam, how you doing, buddy? Ah, oh, so far so good. Just just enjoying the show. Uh, and as such as it is, you know, we, we, yeah. we we like to say this is an audio medium for the for a reason because. Uh, if anyone had to sit and look at our mugs while we did this all the time, it would just be, we'd have fewer listeners than we actually do, so. But, uh, well, it definitely got welcome. me a face for radio. <laughs> That's for fact. But, uh, no, you, not me. Me, not you. Uh, I've got a face for radio. <laughs> I wasn't trying to say something about your face. Sorry. Well, I mean, you know, uh, you can agree with me all you want. You, you don't have to sit there and look at me on your stupid little screen. I mean, it's uh, I, I, I'm kind of glad it's an audio-only medium because then I'd have to actually probably put on pants otherwise. Ah, pants. But uh, so uh, I initially uh, was talking to Jim. Me and Jim run ideas for the show between each other uh, back and forth and try to come up with a topic that kind of intersects with uh, our nerd vibe and our love of uh, technology and our love of... Uh, that kind pop of aspect culture of things, pop culture, music, video games, superhero right. shit. And one of the ideas that I came up with was is because uh, the internet is a tool that we've been using now for what 30, 40 years now, a long time. Whenever it was that uh, Al Gore invented it, I don't know. Man Bear Pig is very real, and he most certainly exists. I'm serial. Yeah, I got my first email address in 1993, my freshman year of college. So it's been a minute. Wow. But uh, the Internet is something that makes not only communication like this, like we're having right now, uh, possible. For those who don't know, I'm in uh, wonderful Washington State. Jim is all the way over in Wisconsin. And and as we speak, Tamlin, where are you at? I am in Somerville, Tennessee, the glorious Somerville, Tennessee. Uh, and and before that, I was over in uh, Estonia, Tartu, Estonia. So you, right. you almost got me from there. But see, that's the cool thing is because we use a tool like the internet, we're able to connect with people over vast distances uh, like it's nothing. I mean, and it, it's a wonderful tool. It's it's the devil. But I mean, it's a wonderful tool. But oh, it's a black it, hole for time. But it does facilitate great stuff like this. That's true. And so what I wanted to do was kind of discuss, uh, and, and I'll, I'll explain, we talked about this beforehand, but uh, uh, in specific, kind of uh, the way our communication has shifted uh, from like the written language and spoken language to uh, almost like a backpedal to pictographs and, and what you might call memes, pictures like emojis, GIFs, if you do that, I do that a lot. But we've, we've reverted to this uh, very visual medium. And so I kind of wanted to address that um, couched in the growth of the Internet as a, a communications tool. But uh, I, I remember me and uh, Tamla, we went to school, oh, it seems like forever ago, yeah. a long oh, wow. time ago. <laughs> and uh, I grossly misunderstood what he meant with his 
because I mean, we studied very different things. I was studying film at the time, and, and Tamlin was studying uh, the Picts, which uh, give us a give us a very little. Uh, uh, what, what are the Picts? Uh, the Picts were the people in Scotland before what we think of as the Scots. They, uh, you know, we get some some early writing from the the Romans who had just a, a heck of a time dealing with the Picts. And they, the Picts actually were the, the one culture to hold back the Roman Empire, which, you know... Was no mean feat back in the day. Yeah. No, they, they were a war machine just moving across the world. And here's this, t- you know, tiny little population of people in this tiny little island. They were like, nope, you stop here. So, <laughs> you know, they're, uh, they, they were a, a unique culture and just... Uh, I was absolutely fascinated by them. But. Well, I'm going to embarrass myself right now in front of somebody who's forgotten more about this culture than I will ever know. Because right there, this you know, a, a one minute long explanation of the of the Picts is is uh, the, the most I've ever really learned up until now. The, the most I knew about the Picts was um, was from the Hellblade games, where the the main <laughs> character, the protagonist, is Senyo, who is a, a Pict warrior woman uh, who's suffering from psychosis. So it's a really interesting game in that it's got kind of half and half. It's a little bit of a history lesson of this ancient European culture, uh, but also um, the developers, Ninja Theory, of this game uh, worked with psychologists to study, you know, what would a mental illness like psychosis have been to a person in a very, you know, barely out of Stone Age culture? How would they have dealt with that, the, the voices in their head? And it, it becomes a really interesting game. But, um, yeah, she's a, a picked warrior. And uh, so when, when uh, Saint said you were somebody who, who knew a lot about the Picts, I was looking, oh, good. Now I can actually learn a little bit more about this amazing historic culture beyond what I just learned from playing a video game for a couple of hours. Nice. Just because I love when video games or, or popular culture uh, draw from something like that with such a rich history. And I'm like, yes, yeah. let's do that. Yeah. And there's a lot more of that, like historical video gaming, things like uh, Assassin's Creed, of course, leading the Which charge I love. on that. But, oh, yeah. But uh, I grossly... I mean, I know I, I know we had conversations about it but way back, but the course of time has not been good on my Swiss cheese out of brain. And so over the course of the years, my brain stopped associating picked with uh, the culture, and it ended up being in my brain. It's like, oh, he, he pictographs, you know, he studied language and, and things like that. And so uh, when I approached Tamlin with this idea for the podcast, he's like, well, you know, actually, and I'm like, <laughs> shit. No! Okay. So what is it? So, so what? I, I, and that's exactly it. But I said, uh, what is, and I had him explain to me what he just explained. And then he did uh, mention uh, your new degree, or is it the new newest yeah. degree that you got since you're like perpetually yeah, in college? I, I yeah, it feels <laughs> like it sometimes. Um, I just uh, last summer finished out my master's degree in folkloristics and applied heritage studies. And for uh, for those who are unfamiliar, I know usually when you uh, you bring up folklore, people are like, "So you study fairy tales?" And that that is. Um, <laughs> I mean, yes, but yeah, it's it, it is a part of it. It's uh, Del Himes uh, defined it as you know the study of communicative behavior with an aesthetic, expressive, or stylistic dimension, and and folk or, uh, fairy tales definitely fit in that. Right. But you know, so does a, a buddy of mine got his uh, his degree in 
oh gosh, his thesis was doing research at a, a hot dog eating contest. So, I mean, it, it, <laughs> it covers everything. You know, if, if there's human beings communicating through it and about it in some way, shape, or form, it's folklore pretty much. So, so in a nice roundabout way, we've come kind of back full circle to the point where you absolutely <laughs> are the right person to talk about given our, our chosen subject today, which is memes, internet memes. We're, we're sort of like talking about how the internet has made it possible for us to communicate in ways that are not, because you can't, I mean, we're looking at each other right now on the screen for folks who are listening, but if you can't really talk to somebody face-to-face, -face, you're not able to pick up on those subtle body language cues or, or subtle tones of voice that might indicate something like, um, you know, somebody saying, oh, I'm coming for you to pick you up, or I'm coming for you, like you're Liam Neeson, you know, so <laughs> memes and emojis and pictographic representations of, of emotion become very almost necessary in an internet context. In a in spoken order for us to word kind of thing, yeah. Right, so that we can communicate, hey, you know, this is, uh, I'm going to put the eye roll emoji or the laugh emoji at the end of this sentence so that you know that I'm not serious about what I said and I'm trying to be funny. So in a lot of ways, we've kind of come around full circle, like Saint said, into this pictographic representation of language and emotion, uh, you know, right back into hieroglyphics in a way. Which is really dumb because it's like all they would need to do is come out with a sarcasm font. I've been wanting yeah. a sarcasm <laughs> font for the longest time. Then I wouldn't have to put the eye roll or the LOL. Well, the most you've the... come up with in terms of a sarcasm font is that thing they do in the memes again, which where they alternate capital and, and lowercase letters to kind of <laughs> indicate, oh, really? So that's what's going on. That kind of just like, just to let people know I'm not serious or that kind of things. But it all it all just ties in because what I find interesting about that is that at some point any meme, whether it's a picture or an emoji or a way of typing or something, because what we do on the internet is in so many ways not personal, it's detached. It becomes just text or pictures on a screen. We have to do right. those things, but somebody somewhere started it and then it moved memetically, virally from one person to the next to the point where anybody who spends any time on the internet, it's, it's, it becomes a trope. We know what those things mean when we see them and they don't need to be explained after a certain point, which is, I think, just fascinating from an anthropological standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I, I really appreciate about memes is so in, in one of the things they really harp on in folklore is genre. And and so much of uh, humor and things like that are set in the genre. Um, and with a meme, you, you have this image. And with that image, you can be like, oh, you know, it's uh, the, the scrolling thing, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It sets the genre. And from there, you can just roll with that and anything that falls drastically outside this you know a long time ago in a galaxy far far away i changed my underwear or whatever the uh <laughs> the thing is that pulls it out of that genre and kind of makes it into humor you know it's it's the way that the image and the text uh relate is kind of fascinating to me and and that goes into so many different areas and i'll, I'll try not to babble too much but um, oh, babble away. It's what we do around here. Well, <laughs> um, so uh, there are Native American tribes that when they, uh, sorry, and I'll try not to force Saint. He's like, oh, God, this is why I don't talk to him anymore. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> there are uh, Native American tribes who they'll have stories that teach um, lessons like most cultures do. And, All histories. But, yeah, and but the the uh, the stories will be related to places, so they'll be like, oh, you know, it's 
uh, one summer where the stream uh, curves in, you know, around the yucca tree, this happened. And then at some point, the story becomes so familiar that when somebody wants to express, you know, that's why you don't do that or whatever lesson is learned by that story, they'll say one summer by where the river curves around the yucca tree and everyone knows exactly what they're talking about in much the same way as if I say, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away or what have you, <laughs> you know what's coming next and you, you can immediately key into the, the genre and the basic narrative. Right. Uh, it's like an automatic relate. You, you, you're able to relate directly to that because of a shared context. Yeah. Shaka exactly. when the walls fell and Temba his arms wide. Yes. Oh, every <laughs> folklorist I know just will get so excited when that episode comes up. They seem to communicate through narrative imagery, a reference to the individuals and places which appear in their mytho-historical accounts. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm very famously on this podcast. I've said many times that I, I'm not necessarily a Trek fan, not because I don't love it and respect it, but because I just there's so much to catch up on, and I kind of miss the boat on it. But yeah, certain <laughs> concepts from Trek because they are a good friend of the show uh, has been on a couple of times, John Champion, and he's an old friend of mine, and he does some podcasts for the Roddenberry folks, and he's got a podcast called Mission Log, where they talk about uh, Trek episodes and how they kind of relate to social and cultural concepts and, and that. So. Yeah, it very heavily, heavily ties into the whole concept of just having these these shared experiences and these sort of like, not even cliches or not even really tropes, but just things that we say to each other that uh, immediately we understand what we're talking about without any previous context having to be established. Yeah. Right, and, and we get a lot of that. Uh, a lot of us in, in our particular age range, uh, I'm not going to tell you how old I am. If you don't know, you don't get to know. But... Uh, <laughs> There is, uh, I mean, we were there for the formation of the internet, for this formation of this new way of communication. Uh, I directly remember uh, stacks of AOL discs to try and log on to AOL back when it first came around, and uh, the early days of the internet with things like... Uh, but I'm let tired. Well, have a nap. Then buy the metals. You know, and then yeah, and, and uh, you know, badger, 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 badger snake, and mushroom. Ah. And And, uh, you know, Donads and Strife and some of the really, really early, the earliest uh, tender shoots of of memes that kind of shot into the internet dirt. Because the concept of the meme, and, you know, this is something that that it's not a new concept. Uh, Richard Dawkins, the the famous uh, uh, author, coined the word meme in 1976 in his book, The Selfish Gene. So it's not a new idea. It's not a new concept. It's almost as old as I am. But it really kind of, I feel like, came into its own. Once we had this shared online culture, so now everybody's online. Everybody has everybody, and their mother literally has an email address and, and a Facebook account. But for the, the earliest days of the, of the internet, it was kind of this little wild west anarchy realm that was just ours. We could do anything, and we developed our own culture and our own sort of uh, lingua franca and, and just the just the way to recognize each other. And, and memes kind of crept into the popular culture very early on as just kind of a way for for the, the nerds to kind of do the uh, the body snatcher thing like Donald Sutherland and just point at each other and go, oh, one of us. One of us. 
us, one of us. They're like you know the, the freaks movie. We we were able to. It was a way for us to recognize each other and communicate in a way that was just ours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's really been it's it's been neat to watch this kind of develop because. Well, like back in the day, you wanted to talk to someone, you got on the phone and you talked with them that way. Ew, gross. And as anyone who knows me knows, that's not what I use my phone for anymore. No. If I have, phone if I is have just to make the least used call, app on my phone now. Right. <laughs> if I have to do a phone call, it's like, oh, I got to ramp myself up for it. And, and just, I had to call Amazon customer service this morning. And that was... Ugh. Just a massive, massive nightmare for me because it's like, not only am I calling just a faceless corporation that does not give two shits about you, um, but and and I know how bad this is going to sound, so please pardon this, but I always get uh, a non-English speaker where English is not the first language, and so today's confrontation with Amazon, and yeah, I'll call it a confrontation because it was, and. It was so badly handled because they refused, I don't know if they refused to understand what I was saying or they refused to acknowledge what I was saying. I was trying to get a refund for a subscription service that I can't. I tried to cancel months ago. They kept referring back to one of the last couple of purchases that I made. It's like, oh, are you talking about this belt pouch? No, I'm not talking about the belt pouch. Belt pouch doesn't sound anything like this subscription service that I'm trying to talk to you about. Oh, okay. Well, we see the transaction for your belt pouch, and I'm like, oh, god damn it. Well, you know, there's a reason why Jeff Bezos is buying support yachts for his yacht, and it's because he's found ways to extract money from people. And we've been over this before, the ethics of sort of shopping online with a giant corporation like Amazon or buying a Tesla when Elon Musk is, uh, you know, two mental breaks away from being a fucking supervillain. Um, you know, I think it's down uh, to one like, now. No, yeah, you're right. He just had one after Twitter refused to give him all the data he was asking for him that he's not right. entitled to yet, and then he broke his NDA. And yeah, so he's probably only a couple of weeks away from just going whole hog and firing up the space lasers. And you know, fine, whatever. But you know, he and Jeff Bezos, even though I know that billionaires are evil, if I need something, and quite frequently I need things. I can go to Amazon and it's on my porch tomorrow. And even though I know how horrible they are, it's really, really difficult to to not avail myself of that sort of um, convenience. But again, that's just how it goes. But yeah, communication. Communication is the essence of everything that humans do when we're trying to convey ideas to each other. And yeah. I said this a little bit in the run-up and, and, and uh, you know, Tam and I had a nice sidebar about it, but I've always kind of looked at art in any form. Even memes, even something as stupid as a little image macro, but memes in any form or art in any form, whether it's, you know, a meme or a dance or a sculpture or or a, a TV show or a painting or even architecture or music or any of those things are an attempt on the part of the creator to convey some kind of a feeling or an emotion or an idea onto a third party in the way that they've chosen to do so through their work. And sometimes things are successful, sometimes they're not. But anything that we do in, in, a, in a visual or audio or tangible medium, we're trying to create something tangible out of something intangible, emotion or feeling, in order to convey our experience to somebody else through that medium. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I used to work at a, a, an art foundry, like right before the Saint and I met. And I got to say, just, you know, I was just, you know, part of the pork crew and, and helping put everything together and all, but 
uh, artists would bring their stuff in, and it was always really apparent when something was, you know, they they were trying to, it, it was something that was inspired, and they were trying to get something across, versus yeah. the, the stuff that they're just cranking out to, you know, it's another deer. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> But, Those you know, places that sell art by the yard for the back of your sofa, the starving yeah. artist sale at the Radisson on Sunday afternoon. Uh, oh, so painful to me. Um, but yeah, no, I, I don't love look on my walls. <laughs> I, I love art that's evocative, and and when you're describing yeah. it, it's like yeah, absolutely, that is the stuff there. So yeah. And even though you can make a meme on your phone with an app and it's just cheap and dirty and stupid, uh, memes, I, I think I'm going to go so far as to say that, that memes are, are the, the sixth love language. I mean, I have people in my life who I adore beyond description. And some of the ways that I do that is I oh, know what stop. your sense of humor is. I know what your <laughs> sensibilities are. I know what you're going to find funny, interesting, or, or cool. So uh, if I find a meme that reminds me of you, I'm going to send you that. And so there's just ways to kind of communicate these concepts and these these aspects of our shared experiences that, uh, that have kind of come around with um, when you find a meme that just completely communicates whatever uh, sentiment you're trying to express or something that reminds you of somebody. It's, it's just a way of like sending them a little gift that takes 10 seconds to copy and paste and then send over Messenger just to kind of brighten their day a little bit. Hey, I saw this and it reminded me of you. So I Absolutely. think it's interesting to see how we've evolved in that language and that communication process um, to the point where, again, we just have all of these shared ideas that everybody just immediately understands as soon as they get them in their inbox or their messenger window. That's yeah. absolutely true. And, and in fact, I have a buddy of mine named Lee. And me and Lee, we keep in touch primarily through text message anymore. He works ridiculous amount of hours a week. I work ridiculous amount of hours a week. Those hours never sync up, so it's really hard to get together. But uh, he is one of the only persons, and he has said this back to me is at the same time, is uh, we're – we send each other your mom memes, basically, mom jokes, <laughs> because, as he puts it, you're one of the only people I can send these to that will get the funny and not get offended. Your mama's so ugly. Every time she look at the mirror, the mirror, duck. <laughs> and so, yeah, we go back and forth with your mom jokes, and the more horrible, the better, I think, and... Your mama so nasty, she sucked your daddy dick and came in here and kissed you goodnight. And very recently, uh, it wasn't a your mom joke, but uh, we had a joke for a lot of years. Uh, you guys remember the movie Goodfellas? Of course. Okay. R.I.P. Ray Liotta. Right, right. Yeah. But there was a, there's a scene where uh, there's a character named Billy Bats goes off on a, a rant. And then yells at this guy. He says, go home and get your fucking shine box. Now go home and get your fucking shine box. Motherfucking mother. And for whatever reason, that became shorthand between the two of us. Is just like, eh, I'm thinking of you. Uh, so uh, he sent me. It was, I'm going to look it up here. Yesterday. It was yesterday, I think. And uh, it was just, uh, it wasn't really uh, so much a meme as it was a, a, just a photo of something. It says, uh. Today is June 11th, 1970. On this date, 52 years ago, Billy Bats made a regrettable remark about a shine box. And he sent me that. And, of course, my response to him was a meme of uh, Bill and Ted uh, doing the most, uh, what is it, the, the, that's the most momentous occasion, my dude. And and it, it's just, it, it's a, it, it we're rambling all over the place, but here's the thing. It is a valid method of communication. 
Uh, I speak more now through meme and GIF format than I ever did before. And this is before, back in the day when me and Jim used to do uh, online vigilante work where we were 13-year-old girls uh, tracking predators. Come on in over here. Have a seat there. Mm -hmm. Um, We used a lot of shorthand. The early internet shorthand, LOL, BRB, ROFL, things like that. The shorthand uh, to communicate because that's how quote unquote the kids talked back then and, and now you do it you just back sound in the like early an early two thousands. Yeah. I'm going to put a date on it. But uh but yeah, I, I mean and and a lot of that influences the way I still speak online because it got into a pattern for me and that's just how mm-hmm. it was. But I, I speak more through GIF and through uh meme now than I would have ever thought possible back in the day. Between me and my wife, we'll respond to each other with a dumb little gif or a meme or my son whenever i ask him to do something he'll respond with a meme uh usually indicating that he's listening to what i'm saying but it's really been interesting to watch these things develop as uh not necessarily i wouldn't say a primary form of communication but it's definitely a form of communication that is widely accepted and we're watching it evolve again further uh, we're stepping out of, and we're going backward time again because things are cyclical, uh, into the Vine era of everything. And Vine was a website on, on the internet where you could upload six-second videos, I think, just little offshoot videos where things were funny, like a, like, like a real GIF before it was a GIF. But now uh, we have TikTok, which I struggled against for a lot, a lot, a lot of years. So I did, did I. not want a TikTok, but now, guess what? Feel Your Fandom has a TikTok, and we haven't done anything with it yet. We're still trying to decide what the hell that even means, but we have a TikTok. So, we're, we're now using these videos as relates. Uh, my wife will send me a video and say, hey, doesn't this look good? Instead of sending me a recipe, she'll send me this little 30-second video of this guy slapping together like, tuna noodle casserole or whatever the hell it is and i i actually cooked from a tiktok video yesterday and it was just mac and cheese but it was a new method to cook uh as they call it craft dinner in canada but uh, it was a new method for cooking where you don't have to strain the water out and it was actually super effective it yielded a very creamy cheesy product without having to go through it was like a one pot noodle kind of thing so yeah, we I found a recipe to... on TikTok the other day for this really great chicken, and I, I sent it to my girlfriend, and she made it, and it was absolutely fucking delicious. So, yeah, yeah there are certain things you can you can t- like I originally when Facebook came along, and I want to say it was probably I don't know like mid to late two thousands, two thousand five, seven somewhere in there. I was a MySpace devotee, and I resisted <laughs> really hard. Like, oh yeah, this this Facebook thing will just be a trend. Everybody will go and it, it MySpace is so much better. They'll all come back. But then again, I have a really really horrible track record with uh, with early adoption of, uh, of tech. I was a guy who resisted MP3 because I was hung up on Minidisc. I was a guy who resisted DVD because I had a Laserdisc player. I, You know, I'm, I'm really shitty at picking tech, but, uh, you know, eventually I, I caved and did everything else and came over to Facebook, and, you know, we've all been there ever since because we're carbon-based life forms and it's the fucking law. But, you know, these, these sort of shared experiences of, like, some of the more famous memes that... There's a certain um, uh, level of governance. There's a certain uh, way that we have to use these things in order for us to be 
understood within the context of those. Um, because there are certain meme formats that are pretty widely recognized by this point that are that connote certain things and certain concepts. Um, so you kind of have to match up the concept you're trying to communicate with the right image in order for it to be understood by the people that kind of truck in this form of communication. Like the um, the Kermit Sip and Tea meme, that, that is the none of my business thing. Or um, the, uh, oh gosh, like the, the easily distracted boyfriend thing. But th these are just, they're, they're, they're immediately understood. They are essentially tropes because they are storytelling elements that you can count on already being present in the mind of the person you're sending it to. And then you customize it with a, uh, a certain situational idea. But you have to kind of understand the point of the meme to begin with or what it relates to and then use the right one when you're trying to put something together. Because if you see a uh, there's, there's another whole category of memes of the, of the billions that there are where somebody deliberately fucked it up or, or did it the wrong way. They've got the wrong concept with the wrong picture. And that's funny in and of itself. And it's just that there are so many different ways that you can use this medium to communicate. And there are so many, there's no end to the different things you can communicate with it, but there are certain like loose rules that govern how they're used. And it again becomes kind of this thing where everybody who communicates via this method and understand that has been around the internet for as long as we have, when it was still just all, you know, GeoCities pages and under construction gifts. Um, <laughs> just we understand these things and on, on an intrinsic level that, that only comes through repetition and familiarity and and uh, consistency. And, and I find that to be fascinating, how it just kind of evolved uh, without really any direct influence, just kind of like these are the patterns that emerged. And we all sort of like at some point agreed that we were going to adhere to those. Yeah. Um, yeah. Another thing, I'm just jumping back a little bit. Uh, when Stan was talking about, you know, the the, the meme with the Goodfellas, um, yeah. another aspect of it is, uh, so in folklore they talk about folk groups where, you know, you have this kind of shared experience and that shared experience creates this uh, kind of a shared um, way of dialogue in essence, right. kind of a, a vocabulary within itself. And I feel like, you know, of course you've got the the small groups where, you know, you went and saw a movie together or, you know, for some reason this one movie has significance to you and you, you keep going back to that. Um, Look at you, know, you, Star Wars fans. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you know, you, you've got that uh, that shared experience, especially in our generations where... You know these movies have had such a, a profound impact. You know, it's, you look at yeah. you know old geezers from Gen X and make a you know <laughs> there can be only one reference, and we're all like, that's right. Um, so, you know, or even more recent uh, things like the you know, one does not simply walk into Mordor. Or, exactly, and yeah. any of the innumerable Harry Potter memes that are just proliferating on the internet. Yeah, <laughs> but it's because it's such a, a an immersive experience anymore that we're all experiencing these things together. It creates yeah. such fertile ground for that uh, that genre that has already impacted us all. So, and I got something I wanted to ask you specifically about that, Tim. Now I was thinking about uh, thinking about the use of memes as communication and. A lot of people refer to what we do on the internet as doom scrolling. If you're just going through your Facebook feed from one yeah. negative shitty article to the next negative shitty article and just um, the downward 
bearer of humanity at this point, or whatever you want to call I've it. I've never done that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but brownward spiral, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> but specifically, as it resolves around uh, uh, people doom scrolling and using memes as a way to cope with this. Uh, shared insanity as it were like like with mm-hmm. the covid pandemic or with you know the war in ukraine things like that it's like people immediately they 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 don't wait for a hot second they immediately jump on the meme train as soon as something noteworthy and newsworthy happens it's boom it's memes boom memes and you that, made a and, will smith oscar slap meme within two hours of that happening and, and put it up on your <laughs> facebook Within half an hour, thank you. I was the immediacy <laughs> of the internet is just yeah. It's it's so the, the the nature of the internet being hey you know we're we're all we're, all of us are constantly like you said doom scrolling or or refreshing our feeds like a crack rat in a Skinner box looking for that next hit of dopamine from whatever is new and fresh and interesting on the internet that allows us to create these things and get them out there as a reaction to pop culture events or world events or anything that that we're all because you know the last couple of years if you think about it. Um, I would say from like 2016 on. No, I don't want to think about it either. But from from the dawn of the uh, Trump era, I think all of us have this shared PTSD, this trauma Ah. response from all of this just absolute horse shit that's been coming down the pike. And so a way to cope with that, because we're all living through historical events, whether it's Trump or whether it's COVID or whether it's, you know, the great resignation and all of us working from home, all these things are shared experiences and we all have these kind of cultural touchstones. So for us to be able to put together memes and send them back and forth to each other, they become immediately relatable. They're, they're a way to, to address things that are happening right in the here and now in a way that makes sense. And if you cultivate your, your friend circles, whether they're in person or online or whatever, um, you have the ability to understand what everybody's sensibilities are and either right. share or create these things that relate to these shared experiences in a way that hopefully alleviates some of the massive trauma that we've all had to swallow the last maybe six, seven years or so. Mm-hmm. And, and like I said, I think, I think that directly relates to what you were saying, Tam, about like, oh, this, what such and such happened around the, the bend in the river by the yucca tree. It, it kind of mm-hmm. has that feel to it. Like we're cycling back to a way of communication that uh, served us well as a collective, as a group uh, in person and in person communication it's now basically the same concept, but stretched across this global communications network. And um, do you think that that is, do you think that's something that's super cyclical? Do you think that's something that is always going to circle back? Or is it just happenstance that it did that, do you think? Um, I think there's a certain aspect of it that is basic human nature. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I think the, the, the need to find the humor in it especially, um, and I, I know I keep bouncing back to a folklorist friend of mine, but a, a folklorist friend of mine uh, <laughs> did her uh, MA thesis on, uh, I think it was an MA thesis, on uh, humor in Belarus. And she's Belarusian, and she was uh, kind of looking at the way that this uh, culture used humor, oftentimes gallows humor or dark humor, but still, they needed humor as a pressure release, mm-hmm. and and it look, seems like you know when you talk about the doom scrolling and just kind of like looking for that next uh, you know dopamine fix. I feel like that that humor that we're seeing just all across the internet at this point is um, you know oftentimes gallows humor, but it's still a pressure release to keep us 
uh, somewhat sane. And part of the, the catch-22 there is it also that uh, when we're getting that dopamine fix, it also tends to keep us from action because we feel like on some level we're like, okay, I got that out of my system. We're not taking action on some of the things that maybe should have action taken against it or about it. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think on a part of the, in a part of the brain, because we're able to release some of that pressure, we're like, okay, you know, we're, we're kind of dealing with this. Takes uh, away the immediacy. The way that we can. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't know a way around that. I mean, we, we have to stay sane or we're going to, with the things going on right now, I mean, how, how does one keep one's head out of the chipper shredder? So, yeah, the um, rise of dark humor, I think, is a direct response to us living in the shittiest timeline possible. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, it's, you saying that reminded me a lot of, uh, do you guys listen to, I know uh, we did a stand up comedy special recently and, um, there's a particular comedian that I really enjoy. His name is Patton Oswalt. I'm not yes. sure if you all listen to Patton. Patton goes off on a ramp at one point about how he went and traveled overseas to Germany. He was doing some shows in Germany. And how every time... <laughs> I love this bit. Every time he, he makes a joke, either the tour guide or the person sitting next to him, the German person he's interacting with, immediately squashes the joke, steps on it. <laughs> and, and... yeah. The whole gist of the joke was, you know, oh, I get it. They can't make jokes because of the Holocaust. And then I realized, oh, it's the Holocaust. It's because of the Holocaust. Any joke you make, they don't want it to lead to some snarky remark about the Holocaust, so they just nip it in the bud. I get it. If I was in any way connected to the Holocaust, all I would do is step on jokes all day. That's all I would do. Because if they... They feel like if they make a joke about it, then somehow it's going to tie back to this collective horror that they've been involved with, and it's going to just be a bad day for everybody. And, and that kind of I remember his bit. That. He was saying, uh, "Yeah, I drove past this nightclub, and there was like this huge like laser grid on the outside of it, lighting it up, getting the people to try and get come in for the nightclub." And I, I cracked a joke to my cab driver. Oh, look, all the snipers must be out tonight. And the cab driver, oh no, it's not snipers. You'll see what that is. It's it's a laser show that we put on the outside of the building, trying to get attract people to come into the night no it's not snipers and he just you know he, he kept trying trying to tell jokes they kept on squashing it and it reminded me of this old joke that a german friend of mine actually told me about how many germans does it take to change a light bulb yes uh how only many? one because we are efficient and don't have humor <laughs> are you serious <laughs> And I just kind of love that, which, it, you know, in and of itself, it becomes funny. You know, Patton Oswalt is funny for a living, but if he can take that awkward situation of I'm trying to crack jokes with my cab driver in Stuttgart and he's just coming back with this really dry explanation, that in and of itself becomes funny. Mm -hmm. But And again, I think, that, again, that relates to what we were talking about with the shared trauma and mm -hmm. trying to overcome the shared trauma. They, of course, went the other direction. They're like, oh, no, fuck it. We're going to kill every single joke. We're not going <laughs> to let any joke in because it might it might have something to do with it. And then they're going to see us. Somebody's going to accuse us and... culturally of having too, you know, too much levity after we've committed all these atrocities. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I look back at Germany and I sort of realize, well, at least these are people who kind of can look back and admit that they have atrocities to atone for as opposed to people here who kick and scream and bitch and we try and get rid of the confederate statues but you know i don't want yeah. to political rant
and it all ties into this shared trauma thing that we just kind of have to to make fun of because i mean even that the the whole thing about trying to parse out the, the horrific things we did in the american past and talking about things like critical race theory or getting rid of confederate statues those things can also become memes because you know i saw a, a political cartoon or meme the other day where, where somebody said uh no, we can't teach no critical race theory because uh, that's a highlight and really shameful aspects of our history. But don't you dare touch that Confederate statue. We got to preserve history. Well, pick a fucking lane, you redneck fucker. You know, what do you want from us? I saw I saw yeah. a meme the other day that, that was, I think I sent it to you, Jim, but it was, a, uh, it was a picture of Superman and it said how American history was written. And on the other half, how American history will actually was. And it's a picture of Homelander from the boys. Yes. Yes. And I'm the Homelander. Mm-hmm. And I can do whatever the fuck I want. I sent Brilliant. that to my wife and I could feel her cringe from across the living room. But again, and it's I'm such like, a simple idea that we, we, we communicate. Well, we all know that America has horrific history we haven't atoned for. So that is something that you understand going into it. And then you also right. understand if you're a pop culture junkie, the, the differences in the characters between Superman and Homelander. And that is several different layers of understanding being brought into one central concept and kind of contrasting these things in a way to communicate a concept that immediately makes sense if you've been paying attention to history and pop culture. And I think there's beauty in that. Yeah. I mean, even even if you just stay within the same genre, if you they say, you know, if, uh, if you stay in one place uh, long enough, the, the world will come to you. Um, mm-hmm. Looking at the people now who are like, oh, I wish... Marvel Comics would stay out of PC culture and politics. Oh. Like, have, have you ever read a comic ever from like the 1960s yeah. or 70s? And we've we talked get about that this from a Star lot. Trek people a lot too. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's, there's a, 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 a non-binary person on the bridge. When did Trek get so woke? 1967. <laughs> Where yeah. have you been? And the same thing with uh, Stan Lee has come out many, many times, you know, uh, RIP to the, uh, the, the Excelsior himself, but uh, he came out a lot and he said that his whole thing about writing X-Men back in the 60s was as an allegory for racism. There are yep. people who are like you in, in more ways than they're not like you. So hating them makes no sense. And if we can kind of put this into a context where we're going to create these characters who are mutants, and make them sympathetic and well-meaning, maybe just maybe somebody somewhere along the line will understand the parallels and maybe just, you know, take down the Confederate flag in the yard, you know, put a little bit of water on that burning cross. But people don't understand that. We had a conversation on the podcast a couple of weeks ago about how Saint had to kind of confront the guy in his local comic book shop about bitching about how Captain Marvel was a woman. She's been a woman since the 60s, you dipshit. Where have you been? Yeah, that was a fun episode. Oh, my God. And yeah, even more fun right now, the first couple episodes of Ms. Marvel are out, and she's not only a female superhero, but she's also brown and Muslim. Ooh, uh, and she's been around for a long, long time, too. But, of course, you know, people who don't really understand cultural concepts or understand things like, hey, the world is becoming a lot more... Um, uh, diverse in terms of religion and gender ideas and sexuality and alignments and all these things. So the entertainment, because life imitates art and vice versa, is is not going to help reflect that. But because you don't fucking read and you haven't been on that boat for a long, long time, you're only getting 
becoming aware of these concepts as they're presented in visual entertainment on Disney Plus or at the Cineplex. So you're only just now being confronted with this idea that we as geeks who are our own sort of maligned subculture because we got, you know, knocked over and had our lunch money stolen. I mean, not me. I was too big. But, you know, most geeks, they get kind of picked on in school. Um, so we kind of related to a lot of these ideas of, of these these outcasts, these these sort of per- societal pariahs in these comics, and we read them for years and years. But now it's becoming a much more prevalent pop culture idea, and people are starting to get pissed off about it. And all of us can, all we can say is, where the fuck have you been, man? Where have you been? Yeah. We, we've, we've been on this boat for a long, long time. And for you to be kicking and screaming about, oh, we got a female brown Muslim superhero. Well, you know, we've had her since the 90s. Captain Marvel's been a woman since the 60s. You know, Kirk was kissing Uhura on the deck of the original Enterprise back in the 60s. I don't know where you are. When did this become woke? Oh, it's these are not new ideas. We've been gradually trying to ease you into the fact that not everybody is a cis straight white dude. So sometimes, and this is a good thing, our entertainment can be a little bit more diverse and a little bit more representational because everybody deserves to see themselves on screen, on page, and, and to be able to have somebody they can relate to in a sense that that this is a hero or this is somebody who I can who I can project myself on. We all deserve that. Not just us fucking yeah. white dudes. But and I see I see what you're saying and I kind of want to tie it back like this. Think of it like this. We're talking about using memes and gifs and things like that as a way to relate to each other uh, culturally and uh, yeah. do a shared experience, whatever it is, like with me and Lee, the your mom jokes or whatever. Your mom is so fat. Donald Trump used her as the border wall. But I think that's kind of a, also mirrors what we're saying with the like woke Trek and woke comic books and all that is uh, these people who have been outsiders to that culture for this long, as you said, the geeks were an off and malign culture for a very long time. It's only yeah. really been recently that geek has been chic, if you, if you will allow me the, the, geek the, haven't heard the, the horrible earth. rhyme. But, uh, <laughs> but so they don't get that level of context uh, you don't, you don't, you're going to find a lot of people who are fans, quote unquote fans of something like Star Trek or whatever, and they don't get the cultural context of the uh, inclusion and the uh, and and the harmony that uh, Gene Roddenberry is trying to portray. We're trying the, to project uh, a future utopia where we've solved all of our societal issues like racism and class right. warfare. But they don't get that. Because they're no. not part of that shared community. So they don't have the context to understand that. And I think that's a large part of not necessarily the problem with memes, but there may be a problem for some of the uh, uh, the older generation trying to adapt to and, and understand and come to context with what the younger people are saying. It took me for yeah. a long time. Uh, it took me a real long time to kind of understand what my 17-year-old was trying to portray half the time. Because he would, like, I'd ask him a question directly, and he would respond vocally with a meme that I didn't get because I either haven't seen the meme or I just wasn't sure what the hell he was talking about. And so it's like there's a lot of times where I'd have to have him conflate to me what he was talking about. Oh, it's a meme. Yeah, okay, show me so I can understand. We Gen Xers <laughs> invented the internet. Just you know, give me a, give me a, mi- a minute to kind of absorb some context. Here. <laughs> Right, dude. I, I was mean, making it, memes before you were even born, kid. Don't even try and hit me with that. <laughs> that was a very old person thing to say, Jim. You know, it's it, it's a it's a very get off my digital lawn sort of moment. 
but it's so like like you said i think it's a lot of this communication um is is folkloric in in its its yeah. nature the same thing as absolutely as com comic books is just a visual storytelling medium movies and television mm -hmm. is just a visual storytelling medium uh podcasts and radio plays and things like that is a spoken word medium it, it all falls back on uh the transfer of an idea from one person to another to try and either contextualize an event or to share a history. To communicate, it, to relate, to reach across distance, to try and find your people and sort of build your circle in a way that makes sense so that you know that when you send that dark humor meme to somebody, they're not going to uh, to, to blanch or flinch at it because you've already established <laughs> that these are people who appreciate dark humor. Because as we all know uh, from being absorbed in meme culture, that dark humor is like food. Not everybody gets it, but me, I'll take a double serving. <laughs> <laughs> And, and I have to imagine that something like that is just really super fascinating, again, to someone uh, like you, Tam, who's, who's had the time and the opportunity to study uh, ritual and folklore and, and things like that and kind of really delve into where it came from, where it's going. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, this, it's, when they talk about, you know, it's like there is nothing new under the sun, that whole uh, hmm. thing going on. It's There are these repeating cycles within, you know, it's like you, you see it. It's always fun going to, to new movies with, uh, with other folklorists. Cause you know, that's like 10 minutes <laughs> into the movie. They're just leaning over. Like, oh yeah. The hero cycle, you know? Um, yep. You mean like <laughs> Harry Potter with star Wars? Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, here's the thing. I, I actually did this. This might be something that might resonate with, with, with you a little bit, Tam. I, I, I worked at a, uh, a Fortune 100 company that should remain nameless. What's in your wallet? That allowed us to uh, to sign out um, rooms and, and hold meetings on anything that we thought was interesting and do a presentation for our coworkers. And I worked in marketing at this company. And at one point prior to this meeting that I signed out for, I remember working on a branding guide and stepping back and looking and realizing, ah, oh, shit. Because I study, I mean, I went to school for English. I was a screenwriter for a little while. So Joseph Campbell and the sort of like save the cat, the cyclical storytelling of, of, uh, of plotting out the uh, the hero's journey on a circle and applying that to uh, to a three-act screenwriting structure. It's just on a cellular level, something that I've always understood and, and, and worked with. So even in, in professional marketing writing, I look back and realized, oh, I used a three-act storytelling structure in this branding guide. I put the hero in a tree. I threw rocks at them. Then I got them down. Um, so I signed out a room and I said, how understanding Joseph Campbell's hero's journey and storytelling structure can help you in marketing communications. And I made a chart, an actual chart with graphics on it. And I think I used Harry Potter, Luke Skywalker, Neo from the Matrix and Katniss Everdeen down one side. And then the other side, you know, and I, I plotted it out like if you look at the hero's journey, you've got your protagonist. They're on a circle. The top third of the circle is delineated as the known. Then there's the unknown. And then, of course, they cross into the, there's a catalyst that forces them out of the known, then they meet their wise mentor and they learn about their purpose. The halfway point on the circle is a false high or false low. Then there's a montage sequence where they apply what they've learned. They almost lose, but win. Then they cross back into the known to the point where they, they're, they're, uh, they, they've, they've become elevated as a character and they use their experience. So whether you're talking about Harry Potter, he's under the stairs, the owl shows up, 
Hagrid shows up. He goes and meets Dumbledore. He learns that he's a chosen one. And then he fights uh, Voldemort and then almost loses but wins. Then he's back under the stairs. Katniss Everdeen is in District 12. She has the Catalyst incident where there's the lottery and then she volunteers for her sister. She meets uh, Hamath Abernathy and then she goes to the Capitol and then almost loses and she and Peta have the berries in their hand and then she goes back to District 12 wiser. Neo, he thinks that, you know, it's, it, everybody has that cycle. <laughs> Dumbledore <laughs> is Morpheus, is Gandalf, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Obi Kenobi. And people don't understand that these this storytelling structure has been something that people have internalized since fucking cave paintings. And yeah. if we wind up getting, even though we, oh, the movie's predictable, but if you, a folklorist, or like me, somebody who studied screenwriting, we can't ever really truly enjoy a movie because 12 minutes in, we're looking for an, ex an inciting incident. Oh, they're crossing out of the known now. Now they're going to meet their wise mentor who knows more about the larger world they've just stepped into. It's really <laughs> difficult to really absorb yourself into a film or immerse yourself in a film if you're somebody who studied storytelling structure because they just can't really spring any surprises on you yeah uh, and but the thing is that like you say those those narratives have been so internalized that we, mm -hmm. we find ourselves looking for them um we, we find ourselves like yeah it's like what what part do i identify with here you know I, well i Look, look for the uh, the Arthur part or the Merlin part or however far yeah. back the narrative you want to go. You know, Gilgamesh or Enkidu, whatever. Beowulf. Yeah, um, it's it, they're always going to have that part that you know. There's that that one character that you want to identify with, and yeah. the the narrative, you know, the part in the narrative that they fit into. Um, so I mean, it's, I don't. It's like I always love. Anytime I can at least feel like we're breaking out of the same story being retold, but at the mm -hmm. same time, I still find myself looking for that story. And I don't know, yeah. you know, it's the folklorists will have long discussions over is this something that, you know, uh, has been beat into us, or is there this proto idea of what this should be, or, you know, that keeps echoing down, or. Is it just a part of human nature that we're looking for this and keep recreating it? Whatever it is, it's it's definitely there, and we're it seems like we're stuck with it. So. Yeah, it's a comfort thing, I think, because we, so many things are chaotic and unpredictable in our own lives. But if we go to watch a movie, we know the hero's going to win. There's a couple of tense moments, or maybe the antagonist might get the upper hand. But at the end of it, there have actually been movies that have tried to sort of break out of that structure, and they either get sort of shunted into this indie box where it's it becomes a thing that's this... <laughs> Or if it's a mass marketed, like a Marvel style, like a major studio, big screen release, I've read stories about how there were people who didn't, who had never read Joseph Campbell, who didn't know anything about storytelling structure or, or the, the, the hero's journey or any of that, that we tried to take some risks with the storytelling and do some different things. And then the focus groups bitch because, well, it wasn't a happy ending. Well, it's not a happy movie. Sometimes you don't win. No, we mm -hmm. need to have a I remember there's a movie far and away where uh, Nicole Kidman and, and uh, Tom Cruise had really horrible Irish accents. And at yes. the end of the film, uh, Tom Cruise, is, and, and spoiler alert, the movie's 25 years old, but at the end of the film, as I believe the book it was based on, the Tom Cruise character dies. And it's that's what happens. It's the, the resolution of the story is that Tom Cruise character dies, but people 
in the who were focus grouped in, in the movie were like, "Why do you have to die? He's a good character. You know, you, I, I hated the part where he died." So they tacked on this ridiculous ending where the uh, they actually focused on him on like a battlefield. That has been a long time since I've seen it, but they zoomed out to sort of like sell the fact that his his spirit was ascending or leaving his body or he's dead, whatever. And then at the very end of it, they the people bitched, so they actually reversed the shot and had him open his eyes again. Okay, no, you win. He's really alive. People, <laughs> without even understanding or having studied things like folklore or Joseph Campbell or any of that, intrinsically understand this structure. And if, it, if, if their entertainment doesn't fit this predictable pattern, they get pissed off and they reject it as an idea. Mm -hmm. Right, but that's part of that shared experience like we're talking yeah. about with with the memes and, and with the storytelling and everything like that. It's 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 the familiar, it's the comfortable that makes it mm -hmm. relatable. And so we've got uh, people like uh, uh, anyone who's written in a Star Wars movie in the last 20 years uh, will have to follow that specific structure because if they don't, like you said, people are going to bitch. Focus groups are going to be upset. You know, uh, the hero has to win in the end. It's like, well, I got news for you. Hero doesn't always win. Well, yeah. I find Star Wars interesting as an example because if you look at that first trilogy, not the first chronological trilogy, but the first trilogy uh, the, that starts with A New Hope and then goes to you know Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, even those three films, if you look at them as a whole story, follow the three-act structure because the second film, as highlighted by Clerks, really ends on a down note. Luke gets his hand cut off. Hang is taken away on the Slave One. Uh, they, they're looking out the window, and they, they, it's kind of a—they've lost a little bit. But then again, that's—that's that's the second act of the three-act structure. Each movie has mm -hmm. a three-act structure, but the trilogy itself has a three-act structure. Put the hero up the tree, throw rocks at him, get him down. The second one ends on a bummer note, but it comes back in the third film, and you know we have Return of the Jedi, and we all know what happens there because again, we're carbon-based life forms, and it's the law, so we've seen it. <laughs> but I always find that really interesting when we when we. People who don't even know the structure and still know the structure, whether they realize consciously that they know it or not. Right. Yeah. No, it's great. And like I said, it, it, it's it's really cyclical. We're going to keep seeing these cycles of events occur. Uh, meme culture is not going anywhere. Meme culture nope. is going to just be, it's going to be a thing because there's never going to be any shortage of doom to scroll through. So there's always going to be the people who are. There's never going to be any shortage of zeitgeist for all of us to share. Yeah. Right, exactly. And, and as previously stated, we do seem to be living through an unprecedented number of uh, events, world events. Yeah, so all these right. once in a lifetime events that we keep seeing. Yeah. It's no wonder people are jaded these days. Are you kidding me? What but, are we angry about today? Is it the shitty politics, or is it this plague, or is it you know unaddressed global warming, or is it oh I just heard about another mass shooting today? So all of us have this gut level uh, sort of reaction to to what's happening around us. We just have to seek out those moments of levity that we can share with each other, or we're all going to go fucking insane. Some of us probably already have and don't even realize it yet. Most everyone's mad here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we're all mad here. Yeah, how do you judge what's uh, insane in this world anymore? Yeah, right. The, the bar for That's... sanity has, has moved so many times; it's difficult to get over now. <laughs> Such I, an evolving goalpost. Yeah, I would say yeah. if you actually fit into this crazy world, maybe you need to seek counseling. Um... <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, on the plus side, I've never fit into this crazy ass world, so uh, I don't maybe need to I am... my clothes anymore. <laughs> maybe I'm truly the sane one. Well, I read somewhere, I'm not sure if I necessarily agree with this, but I read somewhere, or it's, it's a persistent idea, again, in pop culture that we're all familiar with, that uh, that even acknowledging 
that you might be crazy pretty much means you're not because crazy people don't know they're crazy. So <laughs> maybe like there's how some the truth villain in that. never recognizes they're the villain. Oh yeah, we're that all whole the, yeah, that's, it's a tropey idea. Story. It's yeah. it's a cliche yeah. of like you know, you're not so we're not so different you and me. You know the point where even uh, there's that rooftop scene in the original Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie where the Green Goblin says that to Spider-Man. We're you know a, a careful storyteller will do what they did like in the Daredevil series where you've got uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's Wilson Fisk Kingpin who really just thinks he's the hero of his own story. People call him a, a gentrifier, and he's just trying to make Hell's Kitchen better by trying to improve it through property development. But then he's got this asshole in a red suit with these sticks who constantly kicks his ass every time he turns around. <laughs> the best villains think they're the hero of their own story, and the sort of cheap and dirty storytelling tool that most uh, lazy writers will use is that you know moment of incapacitation of the hero where he gets monologue. Ah, you're not. we're not so different. You Maybe we want the same thing. We should join forces. We'll rule the city together. And of course, that can't ever work out. But yeah, every the most interesting villains aren't just evil for the sake of evil, just mustache twirling in a black hat and chucking the tie up laying down to the railroad tracks. They really think that they're the hero of their own story, and whoever the protagonist is is just a, a road bump and the and the, uh, and the way of them getting what they want and making things better for themselves and everyone else. Yeah, yeah. So, well, tell us what you think. We want to kind of open the conversation up to you guys out there. Uh, how is it that you utilize these memes and GIFs and things like that, this pictorial form of communication? How do you use it? Uh, why specifically do you use it? And uh, where do you think it's kind of evolving from and going to? That's kind of what we're kind of hitting at here, we, what we want to know. And, and you can always reach out to us uh, a number of ways. You can hit us up on Facebook, which is facebook.com forward slash fuel your fandom. You could send us an email. Uh, you can get us at uh, fuelyourfandom at gmail.com. The backup Gmail address is fyftalentbooking at gmail.com. We're on Instagram at, at fuelyourfandom, on Twitter at, at fuel underscore your. And of course, we're always taking donations to get comics out of the hands of underprivileged kids at Cash App, Venmo, and PayPal at, at fuelyourfandom. And as always, you can find us wherever fine podcasts are sold. We're on Stitcher, we're on Audible, we're on Spotify, we're on iHeartRadio, we're on all the great places where you get your podcasts. And however you stuff us into your ear holes, we are absolutely thrilled that you do. Absolutely. And I, again, I want to just uh, say this again. This is just a wonderful, unique treat for me to have a, a real fun excuse to talk to a friend I haven't talked to in a lot of years. And, and and Tam, I just want to thank you for taking the time and sitting down and talking with us, man. It was a, it was a blast. Oh, it really was my pleasure. I, 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 like you say, I love the opportunity to be able to get to see you and just hang out, even in this weird digital world right, right now. It seems like we're relatively few, uh, few are the times we're in the same time zone. So, yeah. And Jim, it was great meeting you. Um, Likewise, I, you, you seem like an awesome guy. Um, w one of the possibilities, uh, my, my partner and I might wind up in uh, in oh Madison. So, oh, Madison's a great town. I, I might come bug you sometime so that'd be amazing i'd love it yeah that'd be great too and you got to come back and pay a visit at least to the old pnw my friend oh it's so been much too i long. miss it it's, it's been too long but well on behalf of us at the few your friend of podcast we want to thank you guys for listening to another episode and uh of course like we said uh, reach out in touch with us and, and let us know uh your thoughts on today's subjects but from jim and i i want to thank you for listening and please do remember what we remind you every time Everything is fandom, and fandom is everything. Take care.